Every week, I start off my sermons in the exact same way, with the exact same phrase. Uh, you, got, you may know the phrase. Do you know the phrase? If you have your Bibles, open them to. I, I do that every week without fail. If you have your Bibles, open them up to, and then I fill, fill in the blank. You can open them up to Matthew 5. But uh, I was thinking about that. Almost every week, I always just assume the importance of, of this book without really ever diving into why uh, it's important. And I'm not sure we fully grasp how weird that is. So I just want to be very honest with you at the opening today. What we do week after week as we read this book together, it's weird, okay? Like, it's, it's, just, it's just weird. Like, what, what makes this one so special? Why not do this with the Iliad or the Odyssey? Why not do it with Hammurabi's Code or the Epic of Gilgamesh? They're all ancient literature. Why not get one of those? I don't see many people sitting around today listening to some 30-minute sermon on one of those works, and especially no one sitting around asking the question, now what does, what does the Epic of Gilgamesh mean for my life and how I should follow its authority? We don't do stuff like that. That's weird, Right? And then we do it with this book, and we act like it's normal, because here we are, um, about to read a portion of a text from 2,000 years ago, and then towards the end, we'll go even six centuries before that, really believing that this thing has bearing and authority over our lives today, really believing that as, as different as we are, and by the way, I'll just be very open and honest with my own bias, like... I really believe that. I wouldn't be in this career field if I didn't believe this actually had something to say to us today. But like, as far as we've come, with all of our technological advances and discoveries from the literal endless knowledge of the world in like the palm of my hand, uh, all, all the way to space exploration, which we're doing now, and we're going to spend the next 30 to 40 minutes reading an ancient text that we think still matters. With all due respect, do you understand how weird that is? Like, it's just weird. No one else sits around and reads ancient texts and tries to say, now, why does this matter thousands and thousands and thousands of years later? And we do it on a week-by-week basis. Like, like why? Why get up early on your day off and put on nice clothes and make your kids put on nice clothes, which you all know they're going to cry through, and then bring them to church with 130, 140 other people to listen to some guy talk about a book that's thousands upon thousands of years old. I mean, is that just like a cultural thing that good Americans do? Is that what makes you a good and trustworthy person? Or should we all embrace this reality that like, we're just weird? Welcome to Portales, First Baptist Church of Portales. Our motto is, we're weird. I, I don't know. Like, is that what we just embrace at this point? Why on earth would we hinge so much of what we do and what we believe on this? So again, with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. When you're going to Matthew 5, uh, let me start here. Let me just kind of already refute some of what I said in a way. What is the Bible? And a lot of times I'll just refer to this as a book. Because when we hold it in our hands today, it feels like, it looks like, it turns pages like a book. But that's kind of not a great way to think about it, because the Bible's not as much of a book as it is a library of books, um, compiled of 66 different books, 
written over, uh, compiled over thousands of years in three different languages across multiple cultural contexts. So it's written anywhere from nomadic Israelite people group that are traveling from place to place to uh, written to a thriving monarchy within an established capital and people group, uh, written to an oppressed people group underneath another monarchy that's come and taken over the first. And then uh, the New Testament, the, written to the starts of kind of a grassroots cultural movement that radically changed an empire. It's weird. In fact, it's so weird that on page three of this library, I guess, if I'm going to follow that, on page three, uh, there's a talking snake. I don't know how often you read books where there's talking snakes, um, but, but there's one in ours right at the very beginning. Uh, there's stories of violence and abuse, and sometimes the stories of violence and abuse are uh, ones where it's the very person that God's trying to use is the perpetrator of violence and abuse. What on earth does, does that mean? And then there's a bunch of rules and regulations, and some of them, like some of them connect really, really well today. Um, stuff like Leviticus 19.17, it'll say, hey, don't harbor hatred against your brothers. Don't take revenge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the type of rules and regulations that I, I live for, Philip. Uh, those are the things that I think if we could all just put on our refrigerators and live out, love your neighbor as yourself, life would be better. The world would be a better place. But then some of them are a bit harder to connect because the literal next verse in that passage says, don't crossbreed two different kinds of livestock. Don't sow your fields with two different kinds of seeds or put on garment made out of two kinds of material. What? How did we go from love your neighbor as yourself to don't wear multi-cotton fibers? Those don't seem to connect as well to me. How, how do we make sense? And then we can make it just a little bit more awkward. Could jump down to verse 28, which says, don't make gashes on your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. What do, we, what do we do with that? Or we could jump down to verse 34. Let's get ready for this one. Uh, it says, regard the alien residing in your land as native-born and love him as yourself. What on earth does that mean in a modern American context? And how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of this library of books? Do we just pick and choose what we like? That seems empty. It seems incorrect. Do we just blindly follow all the ones we can follow and just hope it works out? How do we handle this text? How do we handle the Old Testament? And while I can't hit on every single aspect of this, I think it really helps us to see what Jesus has to say. Welcome to the next part of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read it to you, starting in verse 17. Jesus preaching says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And I can't really think of anything better to do with all of this than to just break it down. So let's start verse 17 and just start walking through this text and talking about what it means for us 2,000 years later. And then we'll start even tying it back beyond, beyond that. Verse 17. 
don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I want to start off with that phrase, law and prophets. It's a little bit weird to us today, but it wouldn't have been to Jesus' hearers whenever they're listening to him preach the Sermon on the Mount. By the time Jesus was teaching, first century Jews had officially compiled their ancient text into what they referred to as the Tanakh. It's an acronym. Um, You've got to remember ancient Hebrew doesn't have vowels. It only has consonants, so it's T-N-K, and each one of those stand for something. So the T stands for Torah, which is the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Leviticus, I should, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then uh, the N stands for Nevaim, and that stands, or that means uh, translated prophets. And so for them, the prophets are the minor and the major prophets, but they also include things like Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. That's their prophetic writings. And then the K stands for Ketuvim, and that's just the Hebrew word for writings. It's kind of the grab bag where they put their wisdom literature in and they throw some other stuff in there as well, like Ruth and some other books. And so one of the different monikers that you could use to refer to the Old Testament uh, is sometimes the law. that mainly referred to the first five books, but sometimes it could refer to the entirety. Um, or in Jesus' case right here, the law and the prophets, or sometimes they would say the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. In either case, when Jesus says, The law and the prophets, what we need to envision is our Old Testament. What we talk about as the Hebrew Bible, the religious sacred text that Jesus and his followers would have been reading back in the early days of the first century church. So Jesus is going to say, hey, don't think that I've come to abolish that. Don't think that I've come to take away the Old Testament. That word abolish, any other time Matthew uses it in his book, it's almost always in reference to um, a building being torn down. That, that's what the literal thing means. So you could use demolish, destroy. Uh, I, I kind of like translating it deconstruct in a time where that's become a little bit more prevalent in the church of, of deconstructing things. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and I think he says something along the lines of, hey, don't think I've come to deconstruct the Old Testament. Underneath that phrase then is some sort of rumor that's following Jesus around. Because any times that we say, like, hey, don't assume, the assumption is that you're already assuming something of me. So if I started my sermon out and you've never been here, and I was like, hey, guys, don't assume I'm going to go for two hours today. That might really scare you because you would be like, I didn't assume that, but now I do, Philip. Why on earth would you say that? So when Jesus says, don't assume I've come to abolish the Old Testament, he says it because there's some sort of rumor that's circulating him and his life and his teachings that he's doing something different than anyone else. He's doing something different than the Pharisees regarding the Old Testament. He's doing something different. And people are trying to rationalize, what is Jesus doing with the law and the prophets? And Jesus just wants to be clear, I've not come to remove them. I've not come to deconstruct or destroy those texts. Instead, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill them. Now, what on earth does that mean? And if you've been reading Matthew up until this point, Matthew's already used that word fulfill some seven times. That doesn't seem like that much, but remember, we're only four and a half chapters into his book, and he's used the word fulfill seven times over and over again in the opening narrative of Matthew. Matthew's going to say things, he's going to give a story of Jesus, and he's going to point out some particular detail surrounding Jesus, and then he's going to say, this happened so that what was written might be fulfilled. So whoever this character Jesus is, Jesus is doing something to fulfill 
that law and prophets, that Old Testament text. Jesus and Matthew see himself, Jesus sees himself as the fulfiller of the Hebrew Bible. Now, that makes a lot of sense when we read the prophets. It's pretty easy to go read something like Isaiah 53, which is going to say, hey, he was crushed for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And then to see how Jesus fulfilled that. That's an easy thing to see. The question is, how do we make sense of that when it's commands? How on earth does Jesus fulfill a command of the Torah? And I think, here's the point. Jesus is not interested in deconstructing or disobeying the Bible for the sake of cultural norms. Jesus is not trying to get at, hey, yeah, that was old news, and I just don't want you to worry about that anymore, so don't even bother with it. Just stop thinking about it. I got a new way. Follow my way. Forget the old way. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. But Jesus is also not saying, hey, we need, to, we need to get back to following those 613 commandments of the Old Testament, guys. If we can just get back to those commands, Israel would be better again and we'd fix this whole mess. It's not some, I don't hate to use these words because they're kind of loaded words, but for the sake of argument, it's not this liberal idea of let's deconstruct and we'll just make it work for what we feel like it should work as. Let's progress this thing forward. But neither is it this conservative, if we would all just obey this rightly, we wouldn't have this problem. Jesus takes an entirely different approach. Well, what's his approach? Verse 18. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others, sorry, verse 18. I was reading verse 19. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, so that's Jesus, for this is really important, so listen up. And he says, until heaven and earth pass away. I think it's just a simple way of saying for as long as you're alive, okay? Because I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, for as long as you're breathing right now, heaven and earth are still here, so this matters to you. So until heaven and earth pass away, for as long as you and I are on this planet right here and right now, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away. None of this will go away until it is accomplished. Every single letter of this text, every stroke of a letter. If you're a good King James Version person, uh, it's jot and tittle. That's one of the funnest translations ever. Um, Not until every, every single jot and tittle is important in this book. That's what Jesus is saying. Every single word matters. And it's going to matter until it's accomplished. That nothing will pass away until all things are accomplished. And that just begs a bunch of questions. Because what does that even mean? The Old Testament is accomplished. And, and until everything that it says comes true, until that it all happens, well, what is that? And that could be a whole sermon series in itself. What is Jesus accomplishing? But I'll just give you some nods here and there. Until the serpent from Genesis chapter 3 is crushed. Until the promise given to Abraham to be a blessing to all nations is fulfilled. Until the eternal king of David comes and reigns on his throne forever. Until the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is punished to bring us peace. Or also until the kingdom of Isaiah 40 arrives and the lion lays next to the lamb in peace and perfection. So then the question we have to come to is, is everything accomplished? Well, yes and no. 
Because Jesus has already come and he sees himself as the bringer of the Old Testament to its climax. He is Genesis 3's serpent crusher. He is Abraham's blessing to the nation. Jesus is David's eternal king. Jesus is Isaiah's suffering servant. At the cross, he utters his final phrase, it is finished, and he dies. And Jesus sees himself. He sees that event coming and notes that he is the climax of the entire Old Testament. Every word, every story is pointing to him. But have we arrived at the perfection of Isaiah 40? Has the kingdom of God fully come in perfection? And we have to say, not yet. Jesus is saying that every single little detail of this library will remain true and remain relevant and remain good. It was true and relevant and good for his followers then. It's true, relevant, and good for his followers today for us. So much so, then we get to verse 19. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is so relevant and so true that it demands us do something about it. It demands a response. And Jesus seems to be portraying some sort of reciprocal relationship between you, your love for God, and your love for the Bible. That Jesus paints our relationship with Scripture as a mirror image of our relationship with God. Now, it's not about salvation stuff, right? Jesus doesn't say, if you don't like the Bible, I'm not letting you into my heaven. That's not what he's getting at with all of this. That, that salvation stuff, that's all covered in that phrase, accomplished, at the end of verse 18. Jesus has already accomplished. If you put your faith in him, in his sacrifice, in his love for you, then he redeems you, sets you free, gives you his righteousness, you are redeemed. But after that is accomplished in your life, the question is, what do you do with it next? And Jesus says, you've got to start taking on what I say and living it out. That this matters. It's a comment on how seriously Jesus' followers would take his word. And if that doesn't seem daunting enough in itself, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. It's really, really hard for us to kind of get a one-for-one one of what this means in our current context. But like today... Um, you know, my job, I'm a pastor, I have degrees in studying the Bible and theology, and that's wonderful and good. What I want to do, what I want my life to be about is taking this, being able to break it down and explain what it means so that people can rightly do it. Same was true back then. They had a classification of people that that was their job, to break down the Old Testament, to explain what it meant. We called them scribes and Pharisees. They were the best of the best. So I think today, the best we could get at is something along the lines of like, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Billy Graham. I, I don't know. That's the best I can come up with. Like, unless you're there, don't expect to be a part of my kingdom. And that's like where the record scratch noise comes in. We're like, wait, time out, Jesus. You can't have said what I think you just said because that's not possible. Because that's what everyone's response would have been on that mountain as Jesus was talking. Wait, wait a minute, Jesus. How is our righteousness supposed to surpass that of the people who set the standard of righteousness? And I think we have to understand it in a different light. 
Because I think what Jesus is saying is not, hey, you need to be more meticulous than even the Pharisees in your obedience to the Torah. Because if you keep reading, what Jesus is going to do is not set up a bunch of extra rules for you to follow. Jesus isn't going to give you more regulations that's just going to lock you in a jail cell of disobedience. He's going to give you case studies for what he means. Six key examples that over the next six weeks we're going to be really diving in and looking at each one individually. But just to give you a taste, six examples of how he'll take a Torah law, he's going to revisit it, and then get it something underneath it. So he'll say in verse 21, You've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. Is do not murder a rule and regulation of the Old Testament? Yes, it's one of the big ten. We typically want to follow that. But Jesus is going to get at it. He's going to say, actually, there's something more at the heart of do not murder. So he says, you've heard it said do not murder, but I tell you. And he goes on to this thing about how really the problem in your heart is not that you've wanted to kill somebody. Maybe that is a problem in your heart, but it's even deeper than that. It's that you're angry. You have contempt for people, that you think of that person as less of a human than you are. And so in his kingdom, the problem is not actually murder, it's anger and hatred. He gets to the heart of it. And then at the end, he'll say, you've, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. Jesus seems to be taking the murder command, and he gets underneath it and says, this is what it really means. And then he's going to give the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth command and say, actually, it's not all about justice in that sense. It's about you trusting God for justice. So over and over again, Jesus is going to visit these Old Testament laws. He's going to revisit them and either reiterate or reinstate. Now, neither is a comment about was it bad or was it good. It's always good. It's about what does this mean through the lens of Jesus. But take that back to verse 20. Because I think Jesus explains what he means when we understand what he means by righteousness. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because I think for Jesus, righteousness is not just a simple matter of obedience. Because have you met the people that follow the rules perfectly, but they are not a righteous person? That they know the right things to say and the right ways to act, and rather than calling them righteous, you call them a brown noser at work to your boss. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is following the rules a declaration of righteousness? I think Jesus would come in and say, no, the Pharisees follow the rules very well. But Jesus understands that even in their rule following, they still haven't embraced righteousness because it's actually a matter of the heart. Which then leads us to another lingering question, and that is, can these rules and regulations, can the Torah change our hearts? Can the terms of the covenant get people to truly trust God? And here, here's the cool thing. We have, let's see, let me get past Matthew. Uh, we have this much of our library that tells us about that. We have this much of our library that gives us the answer of can the Torah change the hearts of man? And I won't go through the whole thing, but let's just start with Moses when it all happens. Moses comes to Sinai after God rescues them and the Israelites out of or out of slavery from Egypt. Moses gets the terms of the covenant. He comes in, he gives it to Israel, and the story's happy ever after, right? Do they pass or fail? They, they fail. In fact, they fail so much that God has to send in another nation to exile them away because they have totally obliterated their laws of the covenant. Can following the rules change our hearts? 
the Bible seems to say no. But it's at that moment in exile where we think, surely God would have just abandoned this plan altogether, given up on these people, and just said, all right, man and women, they are messed up beyond what I can even mess with. I'm going to go do another project. But that's not what God does. Instead, God begins to send prophets. And in fact, one of, one of my favorite ones is the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is writing to a people in captivity. He's writing to people that have been just taken away to Babylon and just had their lives decimated. And it's clear that whatever plan God had from Mount Sinai, that the Israelites did not uphold it. That something fell apart. So Isaiah begins writing about this, and in, or Isaiah, sorry, Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he says this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Have you ever heard that phrase, new covenant, before? Who do you hear say the phrase, new covenant? Oh, it's Jesus at the Lord's Supper when he says with the cup of wine, this is my blood. It is the new covenant. Jesus is doing something here. Keep going in Jeremiah, verse 32. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out by hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. This is the Lord's declaration, verse 33. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teachings within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So whatever this new covenant is, whatever Jeremiah is looking forward and seeing, is this a covenant of obedience to the law or is this a covenant of heart? It's a covenant of heart. That Jeremiah sees a day coming when this rules and regulations, they're not just a checklist of obedience, they're a transformation from within. And then Jesus picks up on that and says, this is exactly what I'm doing. The Torah is not just a bunch of rules to follow. It's the way I transform you from the inside out. And then we get to verse 34. No longer will one teach his neighbor or brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. Do we see any pattern in the New Testament where there's the forgiveness of sins for the transformation of the inner being, which takes the Torah and rewrites it into the hearts of man and totally changes who they are from the inside out? Oh yeah, that's exactly what Jesus does. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 5. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy because Jesus sees himself as the climax of the entire Old Testament pointed forward. So then, we don't need any of that old stuff, right? We don't have to worry about that, right? No, of course not. That's not what Jesus is getting at. This is the best way I think I can explain it. I, I've stolen this from another pastor, but I really like it. Um, Let's say, let's say, have any of you guys went through the process of learning a new instrument before? It's a really weird process. If you've never got the chance to do it, you should try. The first, like, two to three years is horrible. You'll do, like, piano recitals, and only your mom and grandma will come to them. Because when you are six, seven years old and learning piano, what is your piano recitals? 
It's just da 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 and that's all it is. And that's your recital. And your grandma claps for you. And everyone goes, oh, man. But why are you learning that? Well, because if you're going to learn piano well, you need to know your scales. You need to know your arpeggios. You need to know the different key styles. So that when you're getting into fifth, sixth, seventh year, and you see this complex piece of music, you can begin to piece it together and play it. Now, as you play that complex piece of music, does that mean, I don't have to worry about scales anymore, all of that's bogus, I don't, I've moved on to bigger and better things. No, because if you're going to play in the key of C, which if you play piano, that's the best key to play in, you don't have to hit any black notes, it's wonderful. Um, if you play in the key of C, you should know what are the right keys to hit in the key of C. You're not abolishing the way you learned, you're building on it and reinterpreting it and doing it in a bigger, more complex, beautiful way. And I think that gives us a picture of what Jesus is doing with the Old Testament. He's not abolishing it, he's not saying, hey, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. He's saying, I'm going to build on it. I'm going to create something more beautiful with it. I'm going to make it more complex because it's actually not just going to be a checklist of rules for you. It's going to be within the complexity of your heart. So let me go back to my opening question. Why on earth would you take the time to show up this morning? Why on earth come in and listen to a sermon, a lecture over a book 2,000 plus years old? And I think the only answer I can give is because Jesus would have done that. Because Jesus did that. This whole year, we're talking about what does it mean to live intentionally like Jesus. And I think the best way we could take this and understand it is to say, living intentionally like Jesus means we trust the scriptures the way Jesus trusted the scriptures. You cannot claim to love Jesus and at the same time disregard the scriptures that he loves. Now having said that, I will confess, putting your weight and trust in a library that's thousands of years old is just downright preposterous today. And I get it. I understand. Because the question that we're facing today is a question of authority. Why would I trust some ancient writing to have any say over my life in 2023, Philip? That seems bogus to me. And if that's you, hey, thank you for being here. I really appreciate you coming in, and, and hopefully this is a place to learn about why we believe we can do that. But I want to take a few minutes and just really kindly push back. I've done a lot of theological dump through the text. I just want to take a few minutes and talk about that. Why would you ever trust yourself and your own authority in your own life? You can say, why would I entrust this book to have authority over me? But the other side of that question is, well, why would I entrust me to have authority over me? Why would I entrust media to have authority over me? Why would I entrust Disney to have authority over me? I'm just going to be honest. I love Marvel. They just want your money, dude. Like, that's, that's just what they want. Why would I entrust them to have authority over me? Why would I trust them to tell me what's right and wrong in, in the world? Because over the past four to five decades... Uh, anthropologists have been looking at this, and that's the people that study kind of human culture and how we got to where we are today. And a lot of leading anthropologists have talked about how we're moving and migrating from a culture of authority, and maybe have just already totally migrated, from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. Because everyone today struggles with authority. 
I don't care if you're on the political right and you're struggling with the authority of mask and vaccination mandates, or if you're on the political left and you're struggling with the authority of a mandated 40-hour work week because I should have time to do art and I don't have time to do, I don't care. You're still going to struggle with authority. And I would say that that's somewhat of a new concept in culture. Because if you go back even 100, 150 years, your life was just marked with authority the second you were born. No kid growing up in the 1800s had their parents say, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. That was not instilled into children until recently. Because it was, you're going to run the, the business that we run when you grow up, because someone's got to keep farming the farm, or someone's got to keep smithing the metal, or someone's got to keep doing the things that are meant to be done, so you don't get to make that decision. Oh, you can marry whoever you want to. No, you're going to marry whoever we tell you you have to marry, because that's how marriage works. This was the world that is not too far history for us now. It was a world of authority. Whoever your parents were, whatever kingdom or monarchy you grew up under, uh, whatever religion you grew up under, that was what had authority over you. And I'm not making a commentary over it's good and bad. I'm just saying that's how it was. And now we're moving to this culture of authenticity. You just need to be true to yourself. Just trust your feelings. Do, do whatever you want to do, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And even just setting aside Jesus and the Bible for a few moments, I would just kindly, as kindly as I can, ask the question, like, where is that landing us? We are a generation more anxious than ever before, more depressed than we've ever been. And I would ask without anger or judgment, but with as much love as I can muster, is there a correlation? Is there a correlation between us saying, I'm going to keep taking what it is I feel is best for my life, and there's the anxiety-ran life that I have? I think the Bible would come in and say that that's what Jesus is saying. Is there a correlation between us believing ourselves to be smarter and more enlightened than any generation previous to us, and yet seemingly more broken. Could it be that we're right back in Genesis chapter 3 attempting to define good and evil for ourselves and whether it's through an attempt to be true to our authentic nature and selves or an attempt to do what culture tells us is normal, according to Jesus, he comes in and says true life is not found in self-orchestrated authenticity. You can try that path for as long as you want, but you won't find true abundant life because Jesus is going to come in and say, I'm the only means for true and abundant life because I am Lord. And as Lord, he gives us exactly what we need if only we trust Scripture like he trusts Scripture. I have a quote. I've used this quote before, and I, I love it. But it goes like this. It's by a guy named Andrew Wilson. He's a Ph.D. Bible scholar, a pastor in London. Uh, here's his quote. Our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So even if he talks and acts, uh, so if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Now all of that being said, how do we handle the Old Testament and Scripture correctly? I'm going to go really fast here. These are final four points. I just wanted to give you some practical things. Let me start there. Why, why do we gather around Sunday after Sunday to read this thing? It's so weird. Why do we do it? Because Jesus did it. 
and I want to do exactly what Jesus did. That's why we exist. That's what we're for. We want to be the presence of Jesus in Portales and live like he lived. Now, that being said, how do we do this practically? Four things, and I'm just going to go really fast. Number one, read the Bible as a story that points to Jesus. Read the Bible as a story that points to Jesus. The Bible is not a checklist of rules. The Bible is not in itself a theology textbook. It's not some encyclopedia of knowledge. It is a story about Jesus. In fact, if you break down just percentages, like 43% of the Bible is narrative, 33% is poetry. So that's 76%. Over three quarters of scripture is narrative or poetry. Then like 20% is letters, which that gives you like 4% is rules and regulations, if you want to approach it in a cynical fashion. And if you're getting yourself caught up because I don't like the old rules and regulations of the Bible, I would just say that's 4%, man. You need to dial to the other things first and consider what is Jesus' claim on that 4%. But on that note, when Paul's talking about this in Galatians, he says, hey, those rules and regulations in the Torah, those were a nanny or, or a tutor to the Hebrews. In Paul's mind, this was like when a wealthy person in the ancient Greek world Uh, had a kid, they would usually hire someone, and it was their job to train up the children to maturity because they had a business to run or whatever it was to do it. And Paul's going to say, this is what the Hebrew rules and regulations are from us. So it would go something along the lines of, uh, here in a couple months, Haley and I are going to have our first baby, and then a couple months after that, we're going to start sleep schedules with our baby. Because my hope is that by the time my kid's two, he goes to bed at seven every night. I don't know how realistic that is. It's probably not, but that's my hope. That's the rule I want to put in there. Like, hey, we're going to go to bed at seven, maybe eight. But there is a bedtime. Two years old, there's a bedtime for for little baby Smith, right? Um, Now, let's say we set his bedtime at seven o'clock. He's going to go to bed every night at seven at two years old. Is that a good thing? I sure think so. I want it to be a good thing. Now, let's say goes by, he's 20 years old, he goes to Eastern New Mexico University, and he still lives with us. And we say, hey, you're supposed to be in bed at 7 every night. That's weird, right? That rule is a good rule for the time to help him get to the point of a mature 20-year-old. But as a 20-year-old, hopefully I don't have to be the person telling my son when he has to and has not to go to bed. Do you see what the law is doing? It's maturing Israel to a point, not necessarily for the sake of the rules. Some of those rules are reinstated. Some of them are for then and then, back then, and not as much for here and now. The question is, how do you know that? You read it through the lens of Jesus. You read the Bible as a story that points you to Jesus. For Jesus, this Old Testament, it was dynamic. It wasn't static. It has motion. It has direction. And the plot line reaches its climax in his life, in his teaching, in his death, and in his resurrection. If we want to understand the Old Testament, we must understand Jesus. Second thing, read the Bible as divine and human. I don't know how many of you guys are as weird as I was, but I'll never forget like being in high school and having to make a decision. Even stuff that was like, where am I going to go to college? Uh, is it going to be Union University? And then like opening my Bible and being like, I'm going to read until I find a yes or a no. And it's like my Bible was my magic eight ball. Did you guys, and that's just me. Did anybody else have, maybe that's just me. I don't know. That was Don't read the Bible that way. That's not what it's intended for. It is absolutely divine. It is breathed out by God. And it's human. It has a context. God doesn't just strike Matthew with a lightning bolt and say, write this genealogy down, Matthew. 
Matthew goes back and he does study and he looks through history books and he looks through all of these things so that he can compile it. It's human. It's people writing to human situations. It is both divine and human. If we want to understand its divinity, we must understand its humanity. When we want to understand its humanity, we should also understand its divinity. It comes together. Number three, read the Bible in community. Yes, read the Bible at home by yourself as a daily practice. It's a wonderful way to start your mornings. Absolutely, all that pastoral stuff is still there. But I would say this, if you really want to understand the Bible, it demands discussion, debate. Well, what about all of these things that come through us reading the Bible together? And I'm not saying that has to be a formal, like, come to Sunday school. You can come to Sunday school. We have awesome opportunities to do that every Sunday morning at 930. Come join us. But you can also do that in the evenings at your house. You can do that with your family. You can go get coffee with somebody and do that. Just read the Bible in community together. And then finally, read the Bible for belief and practice. The Bible is not just for your information. It is also for your formation. Yes, believe it. Yes, let it inform you. Believe the things it says are true. Know about it. Know the shortest Proverbs is Proverbs 1 or Psalm is 117. Know, know all of those things. That's great. The longest is 119. Know those little factoids. Wonderful. But don't expect that knowledge to be what makes you a good Jesus follower. It must be practiced. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, if you count up all the times that Jesus makes some reference to like practice, do this, like one-fifth of what Jesus says is now go and do it. Go and do it. It must be practiced and believed. Because here's the thing. We'll close with this. If Jesus is, is who he says he is, if he is the climax of this library, then it is clear that Jesus says this should be practiced. So I'll end again with Matthew chapter 5, verse, 20, or verse 19. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not threatening you with hell, but he does give you a clear warning. How you treat the Bible is correlated with how God treats you. Our relationship to God is tied to our relationship to the Bible. Because this is how the authority of Jesus is mediated to his followers. The question is, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to read it? Maybe you're saying, Philip, I don't even know about this Jesus guy. And you want to talk about it? I'd love to talk more about what Jesus did for you. You can come up here. We can have a conversation about it before or after. Maybe you need to just come lay your life down and say, I don't know about the Bible, but i got to start with Jesus. You can do that. And maybe you already believe in Jesus. You're saying, i got to get better into this thing. No time like today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, that you are who you say you are. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand your word through your Bible, through your text. God, even if it seems weird, even if it seems like it takes so much time to think about context and what it means, God, help us to be a people that understand your word and teach it accordingly. May we be a people of the text. So God, let us submit to your authority, even when it challenges our own authenticity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.